0: all right everyone welcome to another episode of the market disruptor show today i am joined by nomi Prinz. she is an ex-wall street executive she's an investigative journalist bestselling author of the books, All the President's Bankers and Collusion, How the Central Bankers Rigged the World. Now, if you watch this channel on a regular basis, you know that these are the subjects that I talk about. And of course, I always try to pull historical references in, and she does a way better job of that than I do. So I know you're going to love this interview. Uh, so let's just jump in. Nomi, welcome. And thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited.
0: Yeah. So um, like I kind of said there in the intro, I mean, I love to try to always pull those historical references in. So I know my audience loves that. And, and you've done a really good job in that in your books. I guess that investigative journalist part. Um, but just uh, before we dive into all the stuff that I have planned for us, maybe just give us a little background on how you were this kind of insider you know, on Wall Street and then uh, what you're doing today trying to expose all that stuff.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I started on Wall Street um, basically with a math degree out of undergraduate school, and I was like, "What, well, how can I work in new york city? and and um, I, I wound up getting a job as a program analyst at Chase bank back before it was part of JPMorgan Chase, which it is now, which is the largest bank in the world. and has a lot of historical connotations to it um, to dig into with, with uh, JPMorgan and so forth's legacy. Um, but from there, I went to Lehman Brothers. I was always on the quant side. And then I moved to uh, London for Bear Stearns, where um, I built my own research team to look at just international analytics, portfolio trends, um, investment, and um, recommendations and systems and analytics for basically multinationals, corporations and so forth globally. Um, And then I came back to New York to work at Goldman Sachs um, where I ran a couple of groups there. And it was around the time of the Enron um scandals and WorldCom and all of that. And we were on the other side of that scandal. We were sort of as as goldman Sachs, we uh working with with Around those sorts of companies on the sort of um, esoteric uh versions of of um convoluted options and so forth, which ultimately were um very detrimental to the system itself, you know, in the energy side and the telecom side and the banking side, obviously everything else. Um, I left after that in the wake of 9-11, which was also a poignant moment for so many of us, um, to become a journalist. And, And at the time, there wasn't a lot of people talking
0: Hey, just a real quick interruption to let you know that this video is brought to you ad-free by BlockFi. Now, they're giving you the ability to hodl your Bitcoin and your crypto as it goes up in value, and at the same time, you can earn high yielding interest on it. So you can basically hold it for all the upside potential, and then you can make cash flow off of it at the exact same time. Now, ac- opening an account super fast, <clears throat> super simple, and they've offered to give me up to $250 for every up. But I told them, you know what, let's give it back to you. So you can now go and you can get the $250 whenever you set up your account. And all you have to do is just check the link in the description for details, set up an account, super quick and easy, and earn up to $250 brought to you by BlockFi. So check them out.
1: About you know, what you mentioned, that the historical combination and elements relative to where banking was and and what it had become, um, and also how it connected to the political um, hierarchy, how it connects to Washington, how it connects throughout the world, also the, the governments throughout the world, and um, what that means for just markets, the economy, real citizens, and so forth. And there just wasn't a lot of conversation about, and I still think there isn't, um, there's more now about connecting those things. And so um, I began to write on some of those scandals at the time when I left, and then sort of evolved into uh, writing about the financial crisis in uh, 2008, 2009. And then I dug deeper into the history behind that. Um, in all the president's bankers and and through my work there. And then most recently in collusion, which is a more globalized um, look, where before COVID I traveled, (laughs) I travel anyway a lot throughout That's kind of the the arc um, is is being on the ground, whether it was in banking or in journalism to see kind of what's going on for real. Um, And when collusion, um, a number of countries around the world. Um, I visited talking to central banks, sort of, you know, different people in the governments and different people on the street um, in, in China and Japan, throughout Europe, Mexico, Brazil, et cetera. And um, that gave me a composite picture of the real um, impact that central bank policy has for the big countries, for the developing countries, everywhere in between and um, how ultimately it's, it's not a positive for economic stability. Um, which is actually going to be the focus of my the book I'm writing now. So that's kind of the
0: arc. Okay. We'll drop the name? <laughs> Do you have it yet?
1: <laughs> um, it's it's still a working title, okay. but actually, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we can get to that. I don't mind okay. saying it's 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 called Permanent Distortion. That that's the title. And the idea of that distorted impact um, um, of what's gone on with monetary policy, but also how that's um, affected social movements, unrest, um, who gets selected or selected in governments and so forth, and sort of, you know, runs the gamut of the real economy versus the markets, but also what that means um, in different categories.
0: What I like about the sound of that book, uh, just from what you've told us so far, but also from several interviews that I've, I've watched you in, um, it seems, and, and I guess even the books that you're writing, it seems that you're very tuned into trade-offs right? So everything in the world has trade-offs and and, uh, unintended consequences, if you will. And it almost seems like so many policymakers today are treating like, you know, symptoms on a low level, but they don't really understand all those trade-offs. I mean, do you see that as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm really glad you pointed that out because, Um, there's so much sort of black and white and and so many isms in in, in politics and and even, you know, looking at economies and markets and so forth that um, it's almost like people have to pick a side and that side wherever, you know, whatever that's in um, has its own uh, rules or elements or or whatever. And you can't sort of have, you know, pick one from two different sides because no one understands it. Um, And so as a result, um, there's just a lot of um, gaps in, in, in the analysis of whether it is the economy, whether it's various policies, whether it's um, you know how people really are impacted, whether it's how the markets are, are, are moving on on any particular you know moment um, or day or week or trend or whatever. And and I think that um, yeah, from my perspective, my, my my educational background and my family background, if you will, some is, um, is in math and stat and statistics. And so um, I like looking at data and that informs me being able to also look at trade-offs if this then that what Mm -hmm. if this will that happen and and so that's just how i I approach um anything and it means that you can evolve your opinion because um things change um or disruptors come into the market or into the economy or into politics or into you know social movements or whatever it is and just be able to process that you know more flexibly um and just in terms of how how one thinks or looks at the world really
0: I love that and uh, man, we could really dig into that. I wanna, I have so much to cover today. I don't want to, but I just, the one thing that's important that I I would throw out and see if what you agree, but like, because there are trade-offs, those trade-offs are different to different people, right? So like um, I have my risks and my rewards and I have my desires. And so my doctor tells me, hey, like uh, just recently I had a little uh, scope, a little orthoscopic surgery on my hip. And he says, hey, you need to take it easy for this long. And I said, okay, what happens if I don't? Well, you could build up scar tissue. Okay, but I have to go to work. So like, mm-hmm. what are my trade-offs? Like I need to go to work, but like I could develop scar and I have to weigh that for myself, but my my trade-offs are different than maybe somebody else who doesn't need to go to work or like, mm-hmm. and so uh, obviously that's just my personal example, but on a global level, um, everybody has like individual trade-offs. And so it seems like when you're trying to like deal with trade-offs for uh, 330 million people, <laughs> It, right. can be, it can be very difficult right and so maybe that's one reason why if we if we take your whole kind of thesis and it's like central planning like central planning has a massive flaw right because how do you centrally plan for 330 million people or or 7 billion people
1: no and and and, and that and that's where um there isn't that that black and white so it's it, it it is um the ability to say all right well this makes sense in this scenario or this looks like you know one of the reasons why something is happening, but on the other hand, um, you, you can create plans or wh- whether they are market strategies, whether the risk, reward, and investment, whether they are um, uh, the cost of investing versus, um, you know, the debt that that might incur in terms of building infrastructure. I mean, wh- whatever, whatever the task at hand is that has some, um, you know, from my perspective and sort of where, where I'm writing about, it has some sort of uh, you know, capital or money element to it, yep. um, is just. Not black and white. I mean, I just, yeah. I just go back to that. You know, there are, um, you know, in infrastructure investment, for, for example, we can go off on this for, for, for a long time and I, and I won't, but, but just as a concept, if something needs to get done, it's going to help um, a certain number of people in some locality or nation or, or state or, or whatever it is, but the money isn't there, there's different ways to fund it and there's pros and cons of how you fund it. And maybe each of those things together gets it done. It could be private equity, it could be federal investment, it could be combination, it could be infrastructure bonds, it could be individuals getting involved. We could be lots of different things um, in terms of how money goes into something, a project, a market, whatever, um, and the return um, to the local economy, to the world um, that that comes out of that at some period of time later.
0: So um, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. And then let's work our way forward. So for everybody listening, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask nobody some questions that I think a lot of you guys probably ask me a lot and make statements on my channel. Um, and we'll talk about kind of the origins of the central banks. Uh, we'll kind of for, fast forward to kind of this this collusion that you talked about, um, talk about some maybe current situation that we have, and then maybe try to forecast a little bit of a end game if we can. So for everybody listening, just pay attention for all that. So let's start at the beginning. Now, um, you have done extensive research probably more than well anybody that i can think of Um, i know you've gone into other books to do your research as well but um a lot of that really started there was a pivotal point right when the central bank was created in the united states and we know the central bank was created in in europe first in england and whatnot but um and it really kind of happened around jekyll island now one one thing that i hear all the time is that the central bank isn't the government it's private and some people say, well, no, it's not private. It's the government. Um, take us back to that creation, um, how that happened. And then maybe you could try to answer that question for us.
1: Um, sure. I mean, it was, it's, it's a fascinating story of, of exactly um, when the blueprints were created to when um, the Federal Reserve Act of 1930 was actually passed a couple of days before Christmas in, in 1913. Um, but there was this arc. And it actually started in 1907. When I say started, that aspect of what became the Federal Reserve started, um, and that's because, um, as so often happens, there was a panic on Wall Street. Um, there was a situation where a bunch of traders had cornered the copper market, so basically just squeezing prices up, um, and other traders were saying, "Hey, you're squeezing them up. We're going to like you know knock them down." As 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 we we know from different examples happening um, today, yeah. um, but that happened then, and it had the result of like creating. Um, some lack of confidences and some key bank heads, and runs on their banks. And the person who was tasked with trying to figure all this out because he had more money invested in, in New York and in sort of the Wall Street community than anybody else was J.P. Morgan. Um, and so at the time Teddy Roosevelt was president, J.P. Morgan's like, look, all these banks are you know, potentially um, going to eventually hurt sort of my bank or my friend's banks. And so something needs to be done. So he has this communique with uh, Theodore Roosevelt's treasury secretary. And and long story short, he gets $25 million um, as sort of the first bailout of Wall Street. And he gets to do whatever he wants with it. So what he does is not help the banks that are falling apart. Um, He helps his friends that aren't falling apart to make sure they can all be fortified. So he basically allocates um, the bailout money. But in the process of, of having that you know, connection with Washington, um, and prior to which he actually helped bail out the treasury department. So, I mean, they had a little bit of a history there. Um, he and other bankers were like, look, we, we need something stronger than the treasury department actually, um, to bail us out if there's a situation and if there's an emergency and, you know, liquidity, money is like you know, contracting and, and, um, and it could be a really you know, big mess. And so as a result, and this gets into Jekyll Island and where sort of the blueprints were, were fashioned, um, there there was a multi-year kind of analysis where um, a Senator named um, Nelson Aldrich, who was the head of the Senate Finance Committee or the equivalent at the time, kind of spearheaded this this movement. His son happened to run a bank in New York. Ultimately his son uh, became the head of Chase. So, I mean, there's a lot of family kind of connections going on here in the background, but he and uh, a couple of bankers, not J.P. Morgan went to Jekyll Island. J.P. Morgan was their host. Not That's there. He was their host absently. And I actually went to Jekyll Island and looked at the books from those mm-hmm. um, years, which, which were actually, there's there's a little preservation area and historian back there mm-hmm. um, that, that I got to talk to. And um, it turns out that everyone who did come, the six men that ultimately came, including Nelson Aldrich and some bankers to Jekyll Island during the Thanksgiving period in 1910, um, were guests of J.P. Morgan. You couldn't just like show up at the island. It was not connected by road at the time. You had to go by boat. You had to like, you know, be announced in advance. So there was a whole like sort of thing around it like that. Yeah. And so they all come, they decide we're going to have the central bank um, and we're going to basically be able to backstop. They didn't use the word probably at the time. It's my word now, it's futuristic. <laughs> but, you know, banks, if they have a problem. And how we sell this to the American public is we say, look, if there is some kind of a central bank a bank that can centralize the the availability of money when there's an emergency, when it's needed beyond Wall Street. Well, then it can go to the Midwest, it can go to the you know, the, the the coast, it can basically that money can funnel its way out through the country. And as a result, senators and reps from the different states could kind of get on board with supporting the idea of the Federal Reserve. They didn't support it the first time around. It took uh, another president, took Woodrow Wilson, and he basically got it. Passed under that premise. So the premise was the Federal Reserve would help the rest of the country. And there's 12 reserve banks around the country, and they all have different powers in the reserve system, and it's not a part of the government. It is independent, and therefore it can decide and you know what where money needs to go, when it needs to go there, and, and help things along from the outside. The reality is it was constructed um, by collaboration of Wall Street and some senior uh, politicians in Washington and currently today and then in the the act that was passed in 1913, the the chair of the Fed and the board of governors of the Fed, the sort of board, if you will, um, is selected by the president and approved by Congress. And so really, um, there's a very strong connection to to the government, even though technically, um, it's an independent entity.
0: So you could be right either way so technically it is a private entity but but really because the appointees are put there by the government by the government the president and and the congress um then it is part of the government It, it has
1: it has definitely political overtones and undertones even though every uh board of governor chair will say that's not the case um but that's how they get appointed so it's kind of like really um, and also, um, it's private, so they get to basically also say how will we do what's right for this situation. So they, they actually, the, the Fed has kind of the best of both those worlds in terms of how it was created, um, which is why ultimately, because it was created at the behest of Wall Street, um, it, it, it is there to really help the financial system, which tends to mean the largest banks running that system or operating that system.
0: Now, um, if I want to go a little bit further back in history, it seems like as far back as we can go, um, the governments, the kingdoms have always relied on the rich people for money when they needed it, right? So we can kind of see that all throughout history. But really, it was the Bank of England when the Bank of England was formed, it seemed like um, they came to the Bank of England and said, hey, you need money. um, So let us create this central bank. We'll create a new money and you just declare it to be legal tender, and then we'll give you as much of it as you need for your, um, you know, for your for your war and whatever you need. And so it seemed like that was what allowed them to basically create their own money um, outside of the system. And it seems like maybe the central bank in the United States was kind of created for the same reason. Um, It was at that point where they were allowed to kind of create their own currency, or I guess at that time, they were still tied to the gold standard. So they really weren't allowed to do that yet.
1: Well, it was a combination. They were tied to the gold standard, but but at the same time, um, and that was evolving, but at the same time, they also, um, there was a situation where a lot of banks created their own notes um, at the time. And so when there was runs on Wall Street and panics on Wall Street throughout sort of the recessions and decades before that, um, there was a lack of trust um, between like so what 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 one bank's note would mean in an, to another bank or in another state or if the bank fell apart or whatever. So there's this idea that like these notes didn't have kind of certainty. So the Federal Reserve basically has Federal Reserve notes. Um, so if you look at, uh, you know, sort of how, how dollars even work, it's, it's basically notes um, that are sort of backed by, well, at the time, gold, and at the time, um, sort of that that implicit idea of the system that could be there for it in the government, sort of behind it. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the idea. So they're able to create currency as long as there's enough reserve, um, whether that was pegged to gold or, or now that it's not um, just basically bank pledges to the Federal Reserve. So that's how it reserves some of that capital behind what it does. Though it actually creates money out of nothing as well right now. It's very artificially fabricated. So um, the relationship between the reserves that it had um, or has are, is kind of loose relative to the money it can create and put back into the system. Um, so it's it's, war, it's warped over the years. Um, but that that's really the idea. It can create money. Um, and over the years, there's less that has backed that money um, than there even was in the beginning.
0: Right. Now, if we start with your uh, book, the, the, the Kings, uh, what was it? The, um, the uh, president's bankers. Um, all the president's bankers. And you kind of talked about how um, the bankers have been, been able to maintain this grip of power, if you will. Right. And it seems like throughout uh, whatever the last century, um, regardless of who was in office, which political party, which president, whatever it's been kind of the same people that have been able to maintain that Um, is between that, you know, seeing that play out. And then of course, you know, the, the, the Jekyll Island story, it seems there's a lot of conspiracy that's in there. Um, you've obviously done the research and kind of pulled the curtain back. So um, how much of it is conspiracy? Um, or how much of it is it real? I mean, how have they been able to keep that power and uh, that grip all the way, you know, time, I, I guess I would draw back to the quote from what Mayor Rothschild, he says, like, I care not who makes a nation's laws, as long as I control the money. And so that's kind of what I think the public are seeing today. So how do, how, how do we, how do we view that through your historical lens or your research lens, I should say?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's it's it's a good question because it's it's not really a conspiracy, it's just something that people don't spend time unraveling or that it's it's just difficult to sort of dig into because, for example, the, the whole Jekyll Island meet, um, there, there's a lot of documentation for that and there's also, you know, stories that have evolved around that. Um, when I looked um, into the history of it, I actually took um, firsthand accounts from a fellow named Frank Vanderslip who was actually um, one of the... Um, senior members of what became now a Citigroup, National Citibank at the time. And, uh, and he was a reporter, he was actually a very good writer. So, so some of the sort of, you know, the dark train kind of stories and stuff actually um, might've been embellished, but did happen, right? And so, and so a lot of, of, of the collaboration of, you know, he, he who was a man of, of banking and Nelson Aldrich, who was a man of Washington, um, that was sort of one element. But if you go up the level, you know, J.P. Morgan, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, that, that's the element of, of a president and the head of, at the time, the most important bank and still the most important bank in the United States. But yeah, all through these decades, you've had um, a situation where there's been other families or like main banks that have continued um, to, to stay strong and be strong in the face of like any crisis. And, and a lot of that is because of relationship back in the 10s and 20s and 30s, the relationships, for example, between FDR um, as president and the bankers at the time, um, Jack Morgan, and you know, J-, J. P. Morgan's son, and, and, and what have you, um, were very, very solid with Winthrop Aldrich, who was um, the the son of, of uh Nelson Aldrich, who ultimately wound up marrying one of the Rockefellers and sort of spawning the Aldrich Rockefellers, and you know, and they kind of over the years morphed into. Uh, you know David Rockefeller and David Rockefeller mm-hmm. ran Chase for decades, and and so it, a lot of what happened was a combination of these intermarriages on the banking side, and then with respect to the, the presidency, um, all of those connections, presidents actually openly wanted um, and still want advice from from Wall Street. So FDR. Um, who basically ran on a sort of, uh, you know, an element of the post 1929 crash, middle of the Great Depression. Everybody, you know, hated bankers at the time, and the bankers were looking um, in terms of how to reform themselves in the eyes of the public, so they could kind of get their money back into their hands. Um, was openly working with some Wall Street leaders, including um, the leader of Goldman Sachs at the time, um, to to be his advisor. And so from from the 20s and 30s on. Um, There's always been some advisor from or multiple advisors um, from the banking community that were appointed um, by presidents, in addition to whatever conversations they might have had sort of, you know, off the cuff, um, and just the ability to have, you know, an open channel. We know that during the financial crisis of 2008-2009, I have this in a book I wrote called It Takes a Pillage, right after, um, as that was unfolding, there there was an enormous number of phone calls, um, and, and just communications between the largest bankers and um, and the president, and it, it was something that wasn't just because there was emergency, it's because they were, they were shaping the, the mind, the, the policy of, of, of how they would be, you know, supported or, or subsidized or, or whatever um, during those years and, and in the years to come. And so it was always very consistent that these relationships um, exist. There's letters back and forth um, that I talk about all the president's bankers and that are public if anybody wants to dig into them. Um, through presidential libraries of of real camaraderie um, and and actually real trust. Um, There was times where bankers and presidents, worked together to sort of build things in the country. Um, Then there were times where bankers wanted presidents to help them get out of their own messes or simply to to expand their their wealth or power base. And so these are things that are real. Um, Their motivations are internal personal motivations that might be different for each banker. Um, and, and for the presidents. But uh, you look at President Obama, for example, his his assets were with uh, JPMorgan Chase, and he considered Jamie Dimon to be his favorite banker um, in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, Jamie Dimon, CEO of, of, of JPMorgan Chase. And President Trump did kind of the same thing for a minute. Um, he had uh, Jamie Dimon, I'm just picking on one guy, but you know, this is just an example of many, yeah. um, on, on one of his advisory um groups and jamie diamond left um or or got off of it but the point is like it it, it didn't even matter um, in terms of political party you know these are relationships that transcend politics really Um, they're kind of the definition maybe but they transcend party.
0: yeah and as i just kind of mentioned uh all throughout history we've seen Governments or kingdoms or whoever maybe lean on those bankers. So um, you know they need they need advice. <laughs> they get financial advice from Wall Street and the bankers. Uh, they've done it from from all the time. But um, you really set that up in that book, All the Kings Bankers. But then let's kind of move forward into the collusion piece and, and kind of how we get there. Now we started talking about how there's always these uh, trade offs or maybe even unintended consequences. So maybe maybe you had good intentions, maybe you had bad intentions, but but maybe you had good intentions, but then it ends up going wrong at some point. And I think uh, regardless if it was good or bad intentions or mixed intentions, whatever, we have probably gone far from where it was originally intended. Um, I have a couple quotes. Um, The first one was a quote from one of our founding fathers, fathers, Thomas Jefferson. He said, I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. Um, and so it was like very foretelling like I think at the time there was a power struggle trying to get a central bank in the United States, and it was kind of going in and out in and out in and out and then and then finally they got it in and so he was kind of forewarning like it's going to be more dangerous. And then I think even Woodrow Wilson, um, who, who we've mentioned throughout this creation, um, as he was kind of stepping down, a lot of times we see as politicians or even central bankers step down, they start telling <laughs> kind of a different story. And he kind of said that he regretted maybe creating the central bank and he saw maybe the problems that it was gonna create. Um, and so, I mean, both of those people were kind of warning us the problems. And so now, I guess, tell us how it's gone off the rails, so to speak. And we ran into this collusion, where they—I think—I think you called it uh, collusion. How the bankers rigged, rigged the markets or rigged the world, right?
1: Yeah, the world. Um, yeah. Well, the, the the fears, sort of, you know, from the standpoint of you know, Hamilton and Jefferson's conversations um, back in the day about um, having a central bank and what that could mean. Um, and what it could look like and it's a whole other story. Um, to to, to Woodrow Wilson being concerned and therefore needing a way to sell it to the public even.
0: Hey, just another quick interruption to let you know that this video is brought to you ad-free by BlockFi. Now, they allow you to hold onto your Bitcoin and your other cryptos for all the potential upside. And at the same time, you can earn high yielding interest on it. So it basically cash flows. Now with BlockFi, you can earn up to 8.6% interest. You can also borrow against your crypto as well. It's super fast. It's super easy to set up an account. And right now, you can get up to $250 when you set up your account. Check the link in the description that I have for details in order to claim that $250 because BlockFi is the future of finance. Just check the link in the description for all the details of how to claim your $250 today.
1: Um, Before those concerns um, might have manifested just just because the public kind of was, was concerned about, you know, having the central bank help what they believe to be Wall Street versus them, regardless of what was told and so forth. Um, and and now we have a situation where um, in the 70s, there was a stool mandate that was sort of um, reconfirmed, um, where the Fed's job is to make sure balance or, or, or somehow um, to put money into the system and take money out to the Uh, extent to which they could balance having full employment and low inflation, which currently means um, on average under 2% or or not too much higher than 2% um, in the way that they measure inflation. And so that was the way they could basically um, sort of put money in, take money out, raise rates, lower rates, and so forth. And where it really came off the rails um, is in the financial crisis of 2008, because they weren't just simply doing that. It actually probably started to happen in the subprime, you know, the lead up to subprime and and different pieces along the way. But we really kind of got crazy. And the Fed's book or balance sheet of assets really expanded dramatically was in the wake of the financial crisis. And that's when um, they really overstepped that that mandate and they used um, one of the sections of the Federal Reserve Act, which was their emergency section. And the emergency section basically says that you can use... Um, you know, you, you, you can use sort of um, emergency measures, and those are defined differently throughout history and based right. on the emergency, right? So, I mean, it's, it's a moving target um, yeah. if, if you need to. Um, and but, but emergency is a key word there, because um, the idea was that when the Fed opened its balance sheet and um, went from $800 billion to $4.5 trillion in a few years in terms of buying assets through something called QE, they give money to the banks, the banks give them the treasury bonds that the treasury issued or mortgage bonds that they don't want or whatever in return for cash that they have no strings attached to and kind of can use whatever. The idea is that, um, or the narrative that remains today and, and why it's so dangerous is that somehow this mechanism of the Fed creating money, buying bonds, reducing rates is going to inject cash or, or capital or whatever into the real economy and therefore Main Street's gonna benefit. And so they've always, um, since the financial crisis relied very heavily on that narrative like the Fed and, and other major central banks are unnecessary um, in order they're to do for into our system. good that right? otherwise doesn't exist. They're
0: doing, um, it, they're doing it for our good right that's what they say They're
1: doing it for our good and and and, and this emergency uh, measure that was kind of enacted back in 2008, 2009 um, has before even this pandemic period you know has had lasted, um, for 12 years. So, so you know, there, there's two things, and I say this in a lot of my writing in my books. It's just either you, you have a permanent emergency or you're messing up somewhere or you're lying, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's or, or some combination, but, but the idea is that they kept their policy more or less the same. They did reduce the size of their book a little bit in the middle um, of 2019 or towards that middle from four and a half trillion to 3.7 trillion, which is still like big. And other central banks didn't even reduce their their book by as much that were involved in quantitative easing since the financial crisis anyway. So globally, it was still a lot of subsidy coming from central banks that was beyond being like accountable to um, employment or or what inflation's doing or whether that money's going into the real economy or not or whether it's really just going into the stock market, Um, which is what we've seen in the sort of second phase of of central bank collusion or them sort of doing the same thing at the sort of Roundup of the Fed, um, which is that the book is now at 7.6 trillion um, from 3.7 trillion um, in the summer of 2019. So it's it's basically doubled. Um, And yes, part of that was um, under the idea that it would help some of the relief packages, stimulus packages, government support as well. But in reality, there's no real analysis as to whether that money is actually helping the real economy. And if it is, let's say it is, let's say the real economy, which is still obviously struggling, whereas the markets have basically um, you know, gone on to meet record highs within a year period, um, let's say it is being helped. Well, the Fed doesn't have to show the proof of that. And, and, and it doesn't have to be specific. Um, and, and so it's it's this, this collusion, this idea of Federal Reserve and, and other central banks providing money to do one thing, but having it do another and not being accountable to that is, is really the the major danger that perhaps, you know, perhaps Jefferson thought of in a different way, Wilson, different people throughout the years, but is where we're at now in a, in a, in a much bigger way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the accountability piece, like you talk about, and, uh, without, without having to be accountable, of course, then that leads to, you know what are they? You know f- moral hazard, I guess, right? They have unlimited money, and no one's held accountable for anything they do. Um, I know, you know, we had we had Ron Paul for a long time. We don't really have anybody picking up his charge, but of course he was always pushing to audit the Fed, audit the Fed, audit the Fed. Of course they've never wanted to do that. Some people even come out and said that that it's, it should never be done, right? And there's maybe reasons why. And uh, we've seen, you know, the Pentagon claim 20 trillion gone, 50 trillion, like who knows how much. Where do you think uh, that? What do you think about that accountability piece as far as should they be accountable? Should, should there be an audit of the Fed?
1: Um, yeah, and I, I, I think there should be an audit of the trail of, of when this money was created and, and where it went. Because, I mean, it, even if you're running a business, you're running a household, you're running your wallet, right? Whatever, whatever level, um, the best way to sort of manage that. Um, Is to get an idea of what's coming in and what's going out, where it's going. And not everybody does that not every company does that not every government it's not, but it's 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 a reasonable assumption to to have that and
0: and what your liabilities and assets are. right?
1: Yeah, just 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 the match. And, and so the Federal Reserve does provide and this was their pushback or is their pushback to an audit. Um, they, you know, they provide a book. They're like, you know, we have 7.6 trillion, and we've got this many Treasury bonds, we've got this many mortgages, and our budget is this to pay our people, uh, you know, and to keep the lights on. And, and and to them, that's not it. But 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 what um, what Ron Paul was talking about, and, and actually Bernie Sanders, like at the time, they actually were on the same page um, for for a long time when he was there to um, to look at I, I, to look at what the Fed was actually doing, where the money was actually going. Um, and the Government Accountability Office did a study on this and, and, and saw you know, millions or millions, millions, trillions of dollars of, of loans um, going into Wall Street and you know and it wasn't clear where it went after that. And so the audit should be a real accountability. It, it, it should be, look, you are saying this is happening. You are saying because of this, um, and Jerome Powell will say there's no bubble. approve any of them, and, and I mean this is the issue. And so I, I do believe there needs to be accountability and audit. Uh, just just a we did A and then B happened. I mean literally just like a bunch of <laughs> analysts who who actually look at the the trail um, of money that's created and where it goes after it, it you know buys some bonds onto their books. And yeah. the, the data shows that in the, in the years since the financial crisis, on average, for example, just in the US, um, GDP has grown on average. Different years have been different things, but on average about 2% a year during that period. Some worse, some better. Now the stock market has, has grown significantly more than that. So in total, uh, the economy of the US, you know, net of again, problems and, and sort of bounce backs and sort of go you know, depress, depressed levels. Has increased by about twelve percent since the financial crisis in total size, whereas the market has increased by about two hundred and sixty percent in total. So, so, and that's just one data point um, that one if is one is creating that money um, might want to look into, i.e., the Federal Reserve, and and that and there's not that requirement.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would think it's just it's just common sense. Whether it's a household, a business, um, you take an action you observe that action and what, what was the outcome, right? Was it good or bad? And so if we're going to print a bunch of money and give it to certain people, like did that help or did it make it worse? Right. Um, and so that's just common sense. And of course, someone that's responsible for the lives of not just American 330 million Americans, but really the world, cause the dollar, um, you would think there should be that accountability, but I want to talk about some of the problems that it's kind of created today. So again, right, we have these unintended consequences. And so today, uh, we've seen, you know, this this financialization of the economy. Um, companies haven't invested into research and development, into assets, into capital equipment. Um, and do you think that? um in addition, I would say you talked about um, the problem with the bankers and the copper market pre Fed, Fed Reserve. And if you look kind of at some of the biggest bubbles. It seems like it's always the bankers that have caused them. In 2008, they blamed it on you know the the greedy homeowners bought too many homes, but we know it was really about the bankers and the mortgage backed securities, right? Um, and so it's always the bankers that seem to get the world in trouble. Um, and at the same time, it seems like we've sold our future. Um, I guess, do you see that? I mean, maybe you can expand on that, or am I wrong?
1: No, you're 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 absolutely absolutely right. The bankers tend to create the problem. Um, And then they tend to be bailed out or subsidized in some other manner. um, On the other side of that, you know, it's, it's, it's not an accident that um, this year, well, the end well, this year was reported but but for the end of 2020 Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase had their best trading years ever. Um, you know, because they were able to sort of monetize the help that was was supposedly going into the real economy, but you know, also instilled them uh, to be able to trade more and and trade more volume and and, and make money out of that. So, um, so that they they gain on that side. And, and and in terms of homeowners, you know, like you mentioned, yeah, um, I have a chapter in *It Takes a Pillage* that's called "This Was Never About the Little Guy," um, not sizes, but I mean, just you know, this this was the idea that you needed Wall Street power to even take a bunch of subprime loans that might've been underperforming and, 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 and merge them together and create new securities out of them um, and, and diffuse these throughout the world and then lend money throughout the world for people to be able to buy them. That was collateralized by these securities that were diffused. Around. So, so their mechanism, the way in which they can operate by definition creates bigger problems out of any bet of anything that's that's leveraged in which um, real money isn't there and it's sort of borrowed money in order to um, to make that gamble um, in in however it looks um, that is coming generally from the banks of the banking system and so so that's 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 the reality Um, they do create problems Um, and in terms of the real economy what what i think has happened more and more as, as central banks have become more prevalent in terms of the the power that they have to keep rates or the cost of money low um, and, and buy securities out of the market to keep um, longer-term rates low, low as well. Um, is that is, is that what we see now? Is governments got to be lazy um, about planning? Sure. I'm not necessarily saying and we had a good fiscal response. Yeah, I'll say at least there was a fiscal response in the, in the wake of the pandemic. There's there's debate over whether it was good. There's debate over what should come next. But but there was some. But but there what gets taken off the table time and time again is moving forward and this is a particularly American kind of issue as well and that for example infrastructure um, development and and financing kind of gets put aside and on a bipartisan basis um, even though we supposedly have all this money going into the system and um, and that makes the markets look good and then politicians can kind of say all right well things are looking better because the markets are better though they don't say markets they say economy but it's reflected uh, to them by the markets um, and then they don't have to work as hard about you know trying to plan you know a big dig somewhere or like you know big new infrastructure railway or, or highways or whatever because the money's kind of accumulating elsewhere yeah so why bother spending that time or pushing that forward or waiting years uh, for something to come to fruition yeah yeah
0: Yeah, I think it just comes back down to that accountability, right? Uh, I think it's, you know, back into that word moral hazard, um, where like, you know, a homeowner, or I should say a household, uh, someone who runs their household has to make tough choices like, shoot, uh, my daughter needs braces. So I guess we don't have a vacation this year, right? (laughs) I'm going to prioritize the braces over the vacation. And the government doesn't have to make those choices. So uh, we don't, we don't spend the money on the schools or the roads, but let's go ahead and send a bunch of money overseas to study some whatever random thing that (laughs) or whatever it is, right? So instead of making tough choices and prioritizing, they don't do that. They're not forced to. But um, if we we fast forward from here, it seems like the Fed has monetary tools, right? They can interest rates and they can create money, right? Monetary expansion. So monetary expansion, interest rates. And it seems like Um, when you're playing a game, right, you have like your rules, or maybe you're playing Monopoly or whatever game. And when you're kind of out of money, you're out of moves, you got to reset the game. And the Fed has run out of interest rates, pretty much. I mean, they're basically at zero. I know, you know, they've come down a lot over the last decade, but there's not much room to budge there. Effectively, they're at zero or negative anyway. And then at the same time, we have what $30 trillion of debt. So it's like, we're almost out of moves, it seems like to me, and uh, you know we're seeing less foreign buyers for Treasuries, and uh, we're seeing probably the Fed's gonna have to control yields at some point. So it seems like we're almost out of moves. Um, and again, right, the game would need to be reset. Of course, we hear about this great reset that's being planned at the same time by the WEF and the NGOs or whatever. So I guess where do you see this going from here? Does the game need to be reset? What about this global reset? I mean, what are your th- what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think um, in any sort of reset, you know, you have all the old players which are currently in sort of the power seat. Um, and, and I think the Fed's going to uh, continue to buy bonds for, for the foreseeable future um, in, in a sort of middle or longer end of the curve to combat the fact that there is this uh, lack of confidence creeping in and, and, and there are sell-offs happening in, in, in those part of the curves that had been pretty flat um, in, in the wake of the, the initial bout of buying. Um, and, and bringing rates back down to zero in the, in the beginning of the coronavirus uh, pandemic period. So I, th- I think they're struggling. I think that's one of the reasons why whenever Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell speaks, he's always kind of downplaying inflation. Um, and, and there isn't inflation in a lot of real parts of the economy. We're not, again, we're not seeing inflation in building things, in, in infrastructure, in, in a lot of people's jobs coming back, in a lot of uh, things that were taken offline, uh, in the economy coming back online. You know? So it really depends on how you measure it. But at the same time, um, he is concerned about downplaying it because of potentially being out of tools. You know, he, he's, he and other central bank heads have continually talked, especially since financial crisis, about using whatever tools we have, every tool in our toolkit. I mean, they make it sound like, you know, running a monetary system or being involved in a monetary system is just about, you know, coming in with your bag of, a bag of tools and like tinkering some stuff here and there and everybody's good and it's all fine. Um, just by the wording of it. And I, and I think in terms of a reset, um, th- the issue is that the dollar, even with all of this movement, even with the Fed sort of um, encouraging other central banks to do what it does and other central banks jumping on board and saying, hey, we can reduce rates and like buy bonds and create money. Like, why not? It helps our markets. And it looks kind of stabilizing until it doesn't. So, okay. Um, and, and having a replacement to that and replacement to the dollar sort of head of that, um, is is, a really difficult, um, thing for those central banks to relinquish. And also for all the companies that transact in dollars, mostly throughout the world to, 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 to just stop. Um, you know, so, so, so when people talk about it, I, I see it as a much longer process than I think, um, other people might see it. Yeah. At some point. The dollar might be um, replaced, or at least diffused. It'll start to be diffused before it's replaced. Um, over the course of history, it's taken sometimes decades, if not centuries, centuries for the major currency um, of the world to change. You know, the Dutch guilder in the 171800s replaced, like a while after that, by by the pound. The pound, you know, replaced by the dollar. I mean, all these are things that all evolved over, you know, a century more. So, so. We could see diffusion. The Chinese, for example, introduced the, the their currency, the, the, the Chinese ran into the um, IMF's security bucket or, or basket, which used to be just for securities and now includes um, China's security as a way of diffusing um, that sort of power of, of the dollar on an international basis. I think that's gonna continue um, and that's gonna chip away at what we know to be a dollar supreme system. But I just think it's gonna take um, decades if not more for us to see a non-dollar system. Yeah,
0: okay. So uh, we have about uh, 10 minutes left. We got a lot of questions to get through. So let's see what we can do here. So um, now that we've set that up, I guess I would ask you, um, so it seems like if we go back all through history, uh, we see the same thing repeated over and over and over. Governments or kings get out of uh, get get too ambitious. They have to go rely on the rich people. They have to get bailed out. The Roman Empire clips their coins, debases their currency, uh, and it just happens over and over and over and over again all through history. Same thing that we're seeing exactly today. And I think the same common element always is um, human nature, (laughs) right? And so um, when you give someone the ability, as we talked about, with no accountability, um, they're going to just you know run away with it. So. When we had the gold standard, at least there was some standard. There was something to hold people back, right? So what do you think about sound money, I guess? Are you a gold bug? Were you a gold bug? Do you think sound money is a good option?
1: Um, I, I agree that um, having the gold standard or, or having gold come back as, as even a, a portion of um, reserves. Um whether domestically and/or globally is is important um, in order to be able to um, you know put a cap, which was the point of the standard, right, a limitation to um, how much dollars um, can be created, how much currency can can be created that doesn't have um, any sort of hard asset behind it, and and the historical. Um, reasoning also holds for that. And, and, and when we were taken off the gold standard, um, which, which President Nixon did um, in terms of uh, what was going on at the time, um, he was actually, and again, I have this in, in all presidents bankers, he, he was actually um, somewhat advised by, by the bankers to do this. And that doesn't get a lot of historical play. Um, but David Rockefeller, for example, um, was trying to move Chase into um, having more of its own international power with respect to the Middle East, with respect to um, something called petrodollars or converting um, money uh, revenues, profits from oil into loans to like third world countries, basically creating a whole new sort of side business um, at the time. And, And if there was no need to um, have a, a gold, stand, uh, you know, any sort of gold reserves relative to the dollar, it would just make that whole process simpler. You know, you sort of take out a variable. It would also make it more simple for for the Federal Reserve um, later on to create money as as it has done, um, because it doesn't have to have as much behind it. Um, and that and and it would also make it harder to convert money um, because you have to have gold behind that conversion. Um, and so all of those things made it harder to just simply create um money out of nothing you know fiat money just just more dollars more prevalence and 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 not have have a a sort of restriction of, of any kind right yeah so so i think that's i think that's a negative um because of the results of of what we see has happened by having the ability to just create money and by the dislocation and the disconnect that manifests between markets and like financial assets, where the money goes most quickly, um, and, and the real economy, most people's day-to-day lives, uh, which have not kept up, um, and, and and which have gotten more and more um, disconnected from each other, um, you know, give or take what's happening in a moment in terms of a crisis or a virus or whatever else along the way. Um, so, so I think it's I think having um, a physical standard or a portion of a standard or, or some proportional element, um, of gold, um, is actually useful to this system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the restraint forces them to be accountable. (laughs) And and once they're forced to be accountable, then they start thinking properly through all the decisions they make and whatnot. So, um, okay, so we've established that. Now, um, there's a quote, and uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with F.A. Hayek. Uh, He's an Austrian economist. He's a Nobel prize-winning economist. Um, In 1984, he said, there shall never be another sound money again until the thing is taken out of the hands of the government. But it can't be done by force, but rather by a sly roundabout way. I don't know if you're familiar with that quote um but he was basically saying that look as long as as long as the government's controlling money it's never gonna be sound again and he was really almost prophesying the future and today we have an asset that is completely decentralized distributed um hard and uh with a fixed cap and now we're seeing fortune 500 companies moving treasury to it of course i'm talking about bitcoin yeah um and so um it wasn't done by force, rather than by a sly roundabout way. It was given eight nine years to kind of grow in the wild before anybody took notice. Today, no one can shut it down, so it's too late. Um, and it's decentralized in a sense where the government can't control it; they can't manipulate, it, they can't inflate it, etc. Uh, so I don't know if you've thought about that. If you've looked into Bitcoin, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So first, just 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 on that government control, I, I also think again it's a financial institution control. Um, so so. I, I think um, we just have to realize that um, that 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 whatever the central bank is doing and however it works with the government because it does ultimately purchase government debt as we have seen in in QE in terms of how it creates some of that money, um, it also is buying that debt from the larger bank uh, the banks that are involved in in being primary dealers in treasury debt and so there's this whole extra you know sort of side triangle. Where the government issues debt, Treasury Department issues debt, banks get it, banks are primary dealers, banks give it back to the Fed, Fed gives the banks money, um, and the banks are happy because they have this extra money and they probably clip some coupon, you know, some fees in between for for being the primary dealer. So it, it's it's a it's that combination of, of, of large banks and governments in terms of that money control. In terms of Bitcoin, um, it, it has definitely um, started out not by accident in in the wake of the financial crisis and, and, and in 2008, 2009, um, as um, an alternative. Um, I think it's still an alternative asset more than an alternative currency. That, that's where I am on its evolution. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. But, but basically, because of this idea that the central banks in particular, the, 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 the creators of that conjured money, of that fabricated currency, um, are kind of off the rails and they're just more so now, right? So, I mean, every every reason um, for it having been created and, and for the prevalence that, that, it, that it has um, in terms of being more of a decentralized currency um, holds stronger today than it did then um, because we're in the sort of new phase of, of central bank money creation, right? Um, that said, I think um, there are a couple of things obviously they're having in its evolution. I think the fact that ETFs, um, have now just recently been created to allow um, certain investment in, in, um, in crypto and Bitcoin and so forth is going to give it more prevalence as still an alternative asset class, but, 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 but more prevalence and, and therefore more um, potential stability um, in terms of just not how it grows, but also how it, it sort of has reduced volatility. Um, on, on, a, on a regular basis because right now there's still stories that can beat up or and, or push up um, Bitcoin and when they come up you know you have these these real jagged moves and from the standpoint of say going to the commerce element it being used as a currency um, that's hard for merchants you know local, grocery store owners whatever if, if if they're not that economically savvy or financially savvy or they're just busy doing their job and like making a living of having someone paying bitcoin on like a friday and noticing on their books on monday that it's you know depreciated by 20 you percent. know that, that that's that's when they go to convert it to to why they need to go and buy their next set of goods right so sure. so there's still an implicit volatility in, in in bitcoin that that is keeping it from at the moment um from from being used uh Widely in commerce. That said, their CEOs, as you mentioned, from SP500 companies, notably Elon Musk and Tesla, who are saying, well, yeah, but it, it is, um, I'm putting words into his mind. it it's still, it's liquid in that if you, if you have the right setup in terms of how you buy and sell Bitcoin as an individual or as a company, you can get in and out. That's both its problem and its liquidity. Um, and you can use it as a sort of better form of cash in, in that respect and, and, and currency in that respect. And of course you can um, buy and sell with the decentralized medium of Bitcoin across countries um, and across just any kind of geography. And that's positive. So again, I, I think I think we're in this like evolution stage of it yep. where more and more people coming in, it's it's still an alternative investment. It's an alternative investment that I don't think you can ignore. Um, and it's also one that, if you're actually going to transact in it, um, still has a lot of volatility for the, the sort of smaller, mid-sized business person.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you said that perfectly. And uh, I guess you're kind of a little bit of a Bitcoiner because you seem to actually get it better than a lot of people, right? I mean, it's it's an evolution. So um, just because it's not a perfect medium of exchange because of volatility today doesn't mean it won't ever get there. But I That's would right. agree. I would agree with you. It's not there today. Um, I think it's a great store of value, but spend fiat, right? Like fiat's really good to spend, store your value somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if it evolves to that point. I think it will, as it gets bigger, that volatility goes down, but I was just right. cu- yeah. curious as we are setting up this central bankers that they're, they're always going to try to manipulate and it's getting away from them. Um, and then bringing it back to that quote about maybe having this alternative store of value, um, that they can't control. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those two, those two duke it out. Um, but yeah. anyway, I I, go ahead. Did you have something?
1: No, no, I, absolutely. And I think, and I think um, like you said, you know, as um, interest in Bitcoin gets broader, um, the volatility could be, be, be more reduced. And I also think that means central banks um, or Treasury Departments. Janet Yellen just kind of talked about how it's, it, it's not um, useful and it's not as efficient in commerce. And that's not wrong because of where it is in terms of commerce. But again, the more people, if that happens, that get involved. Then, then that could change. And, and it is a really interesting uh, space to see what happens with that.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk more about that. But I know you have to go. We have a hard stop on the time. So uh, we'll we'll end it there. Um, okay. I appreciate you uh, taking, taking the time to talk to us today. It was an amazing conversation. Um, I'm going to go ahead and link to the books that you have uh, anywhere else that people should follow you that you want to shout out here right now.
1: Um, I guess just my website. It's just a centralized uh, piece of my work um so www.nomiprince.com and um that'll also kind of have my twitter feeds and, and every you know sort of social media stuff um as well kind of filtered through um or or you can go straight to those feeds
0: perfect okay so we'll make sure to link to that and then uh read the books if you want to know more about this and then look out for uh nomi's new book coming out so uh, with you. that we'll go ahead and sign it off thanks so much for joining us today
1: thank you so much great conversation
0: okay Thanks.